0: Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Reports invite only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeon rock today. Also, look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, let's launch into part two of the opening volley of our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which covers the magical year of 1991. Let Arturo Andrade lead you through a forensic examination of how post-rock was born. We go from uh, basically pre, I guess you could call it pre-rock or the epitome of rock of 91 to post-rock. Yes. For our next uh, segment here. Uh, Arturo, take us through the majesty of slint.
1: Yeah. Throughout rock history, there have been plenty of bands whose entire reputations and legacies were based on a sole album. Um, the Sex Pistols with Nevermind the Bollocks, Television with Marquee Moon, Gang of Four with Entertainment, The Strokes with Is This It? But it's hard to find a one-album legacy band, a band revered for having practically single-handedly creating an entire rock subgenre, in this case post-rock, and influencing dozens of bands whose critical acclaim and overwhelming cultish adoration only came after they broke up. Uh, and, And in this case, almost a year after they broke up. And this brings us to, as you said, Slint and their seminal album from 1991, Spiderland. Now, they formed as teenagers in Louisville, Kentucky in 1986. Within a year, through some nifty networking of demo tapes throughout the famously groovy Louisville music scene, they got the attention of Steve Albini, fresh off the breakup of his pioneering industrial punk band, Big Black, and just before he would set off on a career as a legendary indie alt-rock producer and tastemaker. The album that would eventually be called Tweez was recorded in the fall of 1987, and despite its rather shall we say, spartan sound quality. Uh, <laughs> Albini's skills as a producer would improve exponentially in the next year, most notably with the Pixies' Surferosa album. Slint's startling originality comes through, even on tweeze. Uh More impressive knowing it's coming from a couple of 18-year-olds. Hmm. Uh, they're often called post-hardcore, but that label doesn't really do justice to how unprecedented Slint's sound was. If you're familiar with the work of Fugazi, Pitch Magnet, Mogwai, and Godspeed, You Black Emperor, then Slint will sound like they fit right in. Knowing that they recorded their debut well before any of those bands ever entered the studio makes Slint's accomplishment more incredible. Um, Even with a very static-like guitar sound, Let's face it, thin compression seems to be what 1980s hardcore guys like Albini loved at the time. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, You get what they're going for with their guitars. Hardcore punk energy, a sonic youth-esque noise, and feedback as texture approach, and all played with the intensity and intricate skill of what would be called years later math rock, all without trying to be self-consciously overly complex throw in multi-section songs and unexpected passages that echo prog rock without the pump of classical affectations and inventive drumming that drives the music along with a jazz drummer's flair, and you have the seeds of what became known as post-rock. However, this wasn't the album that would earn legendary status. Uh, despite Albini's close ties with Corey Rusk and... Uh, famous Chicago indie label Touch and Go Records, Rusk ignored Tweez, as did many other indie labels throughout the country. While the members were in college, the album languished for over a year until a friend of the band by the name of Jennifer Hartman decided to finance the pressing and the release of the record on an indie label called, wait for it, jennifer hartman records (laughs) yes their friend their friend created her own record label for the sole purpose of releasing slint's tweeze the only album that would ever come out on jennifer hartman records in early 1989 (laughs) hey
0: more power to her bit man more power to her
1: hey man sure however this didn't discourage the band though Uh, During breaks from college, the band would get together in drummer Britt Walford's basement to compose and dutifully rehearse the songs that would become Spiderland. Now, wanting a cleaner sound with more space for the music to breathe and especially for the bass to be heard better and the guitar buzz to be thicker, the band employed Minneapolis producer Brian Paulson, who had worked with friends of guitarist vocalist Brian McMahon. Uh, The Corey-Rusk connection worked this time around, though, as Rusk loved two unreleased demos Slint recorded after Tweez and agreed to have Touch & Go finance the recording of the new album. Recorded completely live in the studio with minimal overdubs over the course of one weekend in August of 1990, Spiderland took the template laid down by Tweez and alternately cleaned it up and made it weirder. The rhythms were more angular and challenging, the dynamic shifts were more extreme, and spoken word vocals that exploded into screaming crescendos told creepy narratives of existential dread. Uh, At the time of its release, nothing like Spiderland had ever been heard, and critics since then and up until now have struggled to come up with apt descriptions. Melody Maker at the time noted how it echoed television's Marquee Moon and Neil Young and Crazy Horse. What the fuck? Yeah, that's a bit off the descriptive course. A more contemporary review in Spin Magazine described it as mid-1970s King Crimson gone emo. (laughs) Now, (laughs) while that may be a little closer to a better description... It still fails to really sum up the haunting and hypnotic power of Spiderland. The reason is simple. Slint literally invented a new subgenre of rock. And when something is so refreshing and new, it's difficult to draw on past reference points for early descriptors. It was heavy without rocking in a traditional, rockist way. It was bruning and intellectual, yet mysterious enough to avoid the pompous pretenses of most art rock. You certainly couldn't dance to it. Uh, it, felt, it felt like a new kind of rock that did away with rock conventions. It was post-rock. Um, immediately after recording of the album finished, guitarist, vocalist McMahon checked himself into a mental hospital for depression and the band broke up. Touch and Go eventually released the album in the following spring of 1991, and after about a year or so, the underground rock press's reaction was so enthusiastic that attention crossed over to more mainstream publications, such as Spin and Rolling Stone. It went on to sell 50,000 copies, which is pretty staggering for a then-unknown indie band. Yeah, The, the epitome sure. of word-of-mouth success, right?
0: Yep.
1: Um, the band's reunions would be sporadic, the very brief reunions of nineteen ninety-two and ninety-four went nowhere, and the band members would venture off into several projects. Guitarist David Paho in particular would serve stints playing with, check this out, Will Oldham's Palace Brothers and Palace Music, nice. Stereolab, nice. Tortoise, nice. Billy Corgan's Zwan and the Yeah, yeah the Yeah Yeah yeahs, And as of last year, Gang of Four. <laughs> okay. Uh, they yeah he was a, a he's guitarist. a pro he's, he's a, a pro. pro. They reunited only to play specific gigs: 2005's All Tomorrow's Parties in England, 2007's Primavera Sound in Spain, 2013's All Tomorrow's Parties again, and 2014's Primavera Sound again, as well as the Green Man Festival in Wales. They've been defunct ever since. Now post rock luminaries such as Mogwai. Godspeed you black emperor, ISIS and explosions in the sky would not exist or they wouldn't exist in their current forms if not for Slint's influence. Alternative and indie rock legends such as PJ Harvey, Pavement, Sebado, and The Shins have all been vocal in their effusive praise and admiration for the innovative music of Spiderland. And if you're a young or even old music fan who's heard so much about this thing called post-rock. Slint's Spiderland is where you go for ground zero of this subgenre in a year that was year zero for the fourth golden age of rock. Chris? Thank you very
0: much, Professor Andrade, for going deep on that, because that that's actually an important uh, lesson. Uh, and uh, let me tell you, I think, for me, the uh, reason why, and it kind of goes and it speaks to the Mogwais and the Godspeed you black emperors of the modern day. Uh, Slint is one of those bands that's hard to truly appreciate. You know, again, you know, they had that 50,000 records, then you know, they had the breakup and they kind of, you know, kind of uh, dipped into obscurity and now people are discovering them over the years. It's one of those things where be- they do their thing. And then so many bands over the course of the decades uh, that followed adopt that post-rock formula and become more, you know, kind of popular, have their buzz, you know, Mogwai probably being the biggest example of that, that, you know, they're always on the Mercury Prize radar for whatever reason. So uh, really it's when myself, uh, you know, Slint, You know, it was a recent discovery in the last couple of years. When we hear it, uh, we kind of go, you know, they're really good, but they remind me of bands uh, Y, X, you know, W, X, Y, and Z. This is when you hear Slint. You're like, oh, they remind me of those later bands. Now, uh, this has the same kind of dynamic. I mean, an example from stuff we've done uh, over the last few months is uh, Todd Rundgren's song, Couldn't I Just Tell You, Uh, a line I like to use, even if you haven't heard it, yes, you have. Because, you know, Cheap Trick and Weezer probably wouldn't exist without that song. And so you come upon Weezer first. Oh, cool. And then you hear Runger and it's like, oh, oh, you know, that sounds like Weezer. No. uh, Other way around. And so that's kind of an interesting uh, trend. And we'll talk, that actually comes up uh, a little bit uh, later uh, here uh, in this episode. But I just wanted to point that out. This this kind of reverse uh, retro discovery is kind of amazing to me.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of one landmark album by a very unknown band uh, to a landmark album by a band that was pretty well known in the UK and an album that still resonates, Chris.
0: Yeah, this is one of those like mythical, like Paul Bunyan kind of records or Bigfoot kind of records. It just kind of, you know, we just kind of uh, look at it in awe and wonder. I uh, want to talk about My Bloody Valentine's uh, Loveless uh, which you know obviously is like uh, feedback as uh, as Zen uh, really yeah and so and uh, and really I mean my bloody Valentine when you think of uh, shoegazer as we like to call it uh, yeah. we probably think of them so let's get into this Now that label that I just named shoegazer uh, to me tends to have a negative connotation uh, that's because I think at least it conjures up a negative imagery. Are you gazing at your shoes because you're stoned or because the music bores the shit out of you or depresses you or makes you want to change the channel? Uh, perhaps there's truth in all of that, but still, it's not terribly friendly in how it sounds and even looks when, you know, you see and hear the word shoegazer. Uh, I've also uh, never seen shoegazer as a genre that to me can easily be defined Uh, It relates more to a production and tuning and amplification style than it does to music with any real similarity or shape to it. I mean, I've seen some sites out there and some articles out there that list like Galaxy 500 as a shoegazer band. Yeah, bullshit. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, If it has reverb and hypnotic production and is much admired, and if it's a duplicated thing, oh, I guess it counts as a shoegazer. So it's kind of a, you know, like mushy term. A
1: catch-all catchphrase.
0: Yeah, pretty much. And so when we're really talking about shoegazer, I guess ultimately we go into Britain and we have this lump of bands like Cocteau Twins, The Jesus and Mary Chain. Which is debatable. uh, Slow dive. uh, They are so
1: not shoegazer. They're just fucking flat out noisy punk in some ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, but but they, for whatever reason, for the uninitiated, they that name is floated out there. Like there's a Wikipedia page that they're on, but that lists you know so quote unquote shoegazer bands. So and you know so you basically these are all children of Highfalutin Britannia. Uh, But ultimately, when we're talking about Shoegazer, we're talking about My Bloody Valentine and only My Bloody Valentine. Why is that? Because with this album, Loveless, uh, the band and mostly its resident genius, Kevin Shields, blew all of the other contenders and pretenders out of the stadium. Now, this is an album that is so precise and so singular and so inventive, it took more than two years to make And if the Mm -hmm. point of ShoeGazer was to drench its consumers in a wave of sonic contemplation and woozy dream logic, then My Bloody Valentine painted the goddamn Mona Lisa here. Uh, There's one reason, uh, that's probably one reason why it took Shields 20 plus years to release another My Bloody Valentine album. I mean, what what, what the hell are you going to do next? So, what's really going on here? Uh, Now, the meticulous, and given how many producers and studios and engineers he grinded through during the making of this record, you guess you can call him obnoxiously obsessive and maybe a little insane, uh, Shields really stacks a whole shitload of guitars and fucks with all the tunings and all the amps to create a stunning psychedelic science fiction soundscape. And then he adds a shitload more guitar effects and amplifications and overdubs and wah-wahs. And then Shields and singer Belinda Butcher add barely decipherable vocals that stretch and mesmerize and step with all those walls of carefully crafted noise. Ask me to recite a lyric on this album, and I can't, and I don't really give a shit about it either. I mean to me it's yeah. just part of the instrumentation. Uh I really, when you think about Loveless and the music, I mean, I perceive it as an apparition. I mean, really, right? I have no idea how the hell Shields is pulling that off. I can't even visualize. I mean, there is not a simple image of Eddie Van Halen hey. uh, fingering his way through eruption while smoking a cigarette to accompany uh, anything we hear in process on uh, Loveless. There, you, you, could, you just can't. I can't even see what Shields is doing. So the album is a technical achievement of high and staggering magnitude that no peer could really replicate. Yet the music itself is also absolutely beautiful, and the songs resonate and invite compulsive uh, repeat listens even now. If you want to blow an uninitiated friend's mind, play him or her this record. As a final thought here, uh, I'd say that there's a measure of serendipity in, in My Bloody Valentine completing and releasing Loveless in November of 1991, which is right into the teeth of the acceleration of the fourth golden age of rock, you know, yep. t- tied to those grunge bands and chili peppers and, and those. And and this is the time when serious, uh, meaningful hard rock began to matter to kids and young adults again, and arguably more than ever before. So right time, right movement, right generation, right emotional resonance, and yes, right sound. Uh, This masterwork attaches itself explicitly to 91 as a result. Uh, Loveless is really the only pair of shoes from the era truly worth a long, lusty gaze at your Converse All-Stars. There you go.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Here's the thing. It took me a really long time to fully appreciate my bloody valentine i used to call them my boring valentine you know and and, and i would always complain that you know, you know kevin shields and all his you know guitar noise wankery was just there to disguise the fact that he can't write songs um <laughs> now while i still question his songwriting uh capability um what finally got me to really appreciate and get into and 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 really like uh, loveless I'll, I'll admit, drugs. <laughs> yeah. Here's a story. Here's a story. Last year, I had a very bad nervous system-induced headache that went all the way to the back, uh, um, my back of my head, right side. It was, it was a ner- nervous system-induced headache. It wasn't at my usual tension headaches, which is like the muscles cramping. It was something different. So the doctor prescribed me some low-level opioids. Mm-hmm. Um. So what I did, being me, like, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, if 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 if, if one packet will work, let's try three packets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Low, low <laughs> level ain't ain't, ain't ain't low enough, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I took three packets. In Korea, pills come in little packets of like three or four. So I took three packets of those low-level opioids. Lied. I lay down in bed, and I listened to Loveless, and that's when I got it. <laughs> that, that's when I got okay this is enjoy it as pure sound as, as hypnotic trancy sound forget about the lyrics forget about the vocals uh, just well and the vocals like you said just part of an instrument and that's when I got it um, and to me Loveless will always be one of the ultimate drug albums of all time and a great drug album for that so you know th- th- there are albums that you know weed helped me appreciate more opioids helped me appreciate my bloody valentine more yeah so which,
0: that's my that's my story which actually pretty much sounds par for the course uh one other things <laughs> before we move on i always like to uh, mention when anybody talks about my bloody valentine uh once upon a time uh fish as you know uh, yeah. a lot of people know it has a tradition of doing a halloween show where they cover an album they yeah. came very 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 close to covering loveless uh, yeah because i guess uh Anastasio was experimenting with this idea of stacking five amps all in different settings and to see if he yeah. could come close. And right. I guess maybe he got psyched out and they decided to do Dark Side of the Moon instead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, real cliche, you know, you know write, write your own jokes there. One of our main sources as we researched this episode and this entire Fourth Golden Age of Rock series really was author Mark Yarm's fascinating 2011 book, Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge. As the book's title suggests, Yarm, in his role as chronicler and interviewer, puts all of what actually happened up there in Seattle during this magnificently strange national outbreak of their musical scene into the mouths and souls of the people who lived it or were associated with it. This includes folks like sub-pop co-founder Bruce Pavitt, Screaming Trees drummer Barrett Martin, Bikini Kills, Kathleen Hanna, and many, 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 many more. We strongly recommend this essential volume by Everybody Loves Our Town and Oral History of Grunge today at a local bookstore or record store. And so here uh, we make a couple of transitions. Uh, My Bloody Valentine and Shields, they're Irish. The next uh, band we're going to talk about is Scottish, and we also go from the indecipherable uh, mystery and wonder of the walls of noise to very, very, very clear pop that, much like Slint, well, it's not quite like Slint, but it, it brings a focus to a long-lost band that has not been lost since. So right. uh, g- get us into a Teenage Fan Club here.
1: Yes, uh, in 1991, a little-known indie alternative rock band from Glasgow, Scotland, mm-hmm. named a Teenage Fan Club, released their third album, Bandwagon-esque, on legendary UK indie label Creation, released on Geffen in the US. After the British music press effusively gushed over the record, they weren't little-known anymore. The hype alone pushed the album to the upper regions of the UK album chart, and the momentum carried over to the US as well. The band actually had a song, the delectable star sign, go as far as number four in the modern rock chart. At the end of the year, Spin Magazine voted the the album number one album of 1991. Yes, ahead of Nirvana's Nevermind. Yeah. Uh, It's easy to hear why the album was and continues to be so beloved. It's perfectly crafted power pop soundcraft, packed with luscious melodies, warm vocal harmonies, infectious hooks, crunchy noisy indie guitar riffs that aren't too abrasive, and a yearning lyrical romanticism that can melt the iciest heart. Yep, it but is it, also yeah. What are you saying, Chris? Yeah, it just it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful yeah. album. It's a beautiful um, record. Really is. Here's another thing: the album is. It is so unashamedly and unabashedly in debt and enthralled to the long lost 1970s American power pop band Big Star that it may as well have been Big Star's fourth album. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Seriously, listen to the album, close your eyes, and in your mind, try to replace Norman Blake's and Gerard Love's vocals with those of Alex Chilton and Chris Bell. It's fucking Big Star, just with fuzzier guitars. Um, In fact, I'll argue this. The real legacy of Teenage Fan Club's bandwagon-esque, apart from how good an album it is, is that at the dawn of the fourth golden age of rock, it rekindled the music-loving public's interest in Big Star and started the rehabilitation of that older band's reputation and the reevaluation of their incredibly powerful body of work. Now. To be fair, Big Star was already being talked up by some heavy-duty rock figures in the years leading up to Bandwagon-esque, most notably R.E.M., The Replacements, The Bangles, and Matthew Sweet. Yes. But it wa- it wasn't until a then-young band like Teenage Fan Club effortless, effortlessly showed how Big Star's influence permeated prominently through the new crop of guitar-driven indie alternative bands. You can draw a straight line from Big Star all the way down to the Replacements and R.E.M., to the chiming power pop of Matthew Sweet, to the melancholy guitar pop of the Lemonheads, to the more commercial strains of such guitar rock later on in the 1990s, such as Toad the Wet Sprocket, The Gin Blossoms, and Soul Asylum. Nowadays, in critic music speak and music geek fandom, the word Big Star-esque has essentially become an adjective. Yeah, pretty much. A, a, a catch-all reference point that describes what countless bands from the 1990s and onward have and continue to aspire to. If you say a band sounds like Big Star, we know exactly what you mean. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That big, is a template. Big, yeah. yeah. Big Star now belong in anyone's discussion of the 10 or 15 greatest American bands of all time. As of 2020, all three big star albums were on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest album of, Albums of All Time list. Teenage fan club's chief contribution to the fourth golden age of rock was to popularize this reference point and inspire hundreds of thousands of music geeks, like the curmudgeons, <laughs> to go back and seek out big star.
0: Chris? Yeah, uh, this is really part of uh, one of the more fascinating uh, aspects of the fourth golden age of rock. Now we've talked about you know the the grunge bands and some of these these other bands that they're restoring meaning. You know, you're coming off of yeah. five years of all the sort of the uh, the preening and the uh, you know all the the hairspray and Michael Jackson and you know, kind of showy stuff. And now with the explosion of grunge and sort of the other uh, genres, now everybody is in the meaning. That means you have passion. That means you want to learn as much as possible. You want to consume as much as possible. And so herein lies the resurrection from the tombs of a band like big star, uh, where, you know, the teenage fan clubs, uh, kind of use that template and have that reverence. I think, like you said, I mean, I mean, listen to December and, you know, try not to think that they owe Alex Chilton and Chris Bell a royalty. I mean, I mean, come on, holy shit. But (laughs) uh, but yeah, I'm just saying. so you also had, you know, this sort of look back machine and sort of styles that were big in the uh, 70s, but had kind of uh, dissipated a bit. Uh, They kind of started to come back. I mean, think of other bands like Jellyfish and Monster Magnet. Uh, yeah. That kind of brought in some some weird stuff from the seventies, kind of back into uh, back into fashion. So uh, I think that this it's not just about Big Star; um, it's about right. that, it's about that dynamic. I mean, another artist that comes off the top of my head is Shugie Otis, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, who uh, had kind of been long lost, and then lo and behold, Tarantino uses uh, Strawberry Letter Twenty Three and uh, Jackie Brown, yeah. and and now all of a sudden, and then. By two thousand, uh, Outcast is basically interpolating it for their song Miss Jackson, and yeah. so so the idea is that was a look back machine too. A guy who was lost is now found, and I think this is one of the ethos is uh, if that's even a word of uh, the fourth golden age of rock in terms of that search for meaning and uh, d- the deep dive uh, of our you know Gen X uh, peers.
1: Now speaking of bands who love Big Star.
0: Yeah, uh, and a a whole bunch of other bands that they then created a formula for and then just built on it and built on it and built on it and became one of the more original American bands of all time. Here again, we are talking about R.E.M. Uh, It was in March of 1991 that we uh, were uh, bestowed with the album Out of Time. And, you know, so we talked last record in depth about how there was this bridge period Uh, where they went from that sort of jangly, mumbly, lo-fi abstraction period of the early albums and uh, kind of built their way up into the rock stars and poetic polemicists and master painters of exotic, string-driven mid-tempo and slow ballads that most rock and roll fans still remember and revere. Well, on March 12th, 1991, the transformation became complete when out of time uh, hit stores. Uh, I actually remember buying it that week. I it was a school field trip in New York and I was at the tower records in Greenwich village. Uh, mm. I bought that album there. It was the hardest time I ever had trying to uh, open up a jewel box uh, or not, <laughs> jewel box, or not, well, you remember one of the, like the long, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sort long of the, ones, yeah. the yeah. long paper yeah. ones. Yeah. I was yeah, a pain yeah. in the ass. So anyway, that's, that's one of my memories of, of out of time. So now to the substance, uh, again, the album propelled the band into the super duper big time. Uh, it's not their, it's not the band's best record. Uh, that's a competition between uh, '83's debut *Murmur* and '92's *Automatic for the People*, uh, depending on the day and your mood. But out of time, I would argue is the album that you most likely remember and associate with REM. Uh, it is defined by its pop craftsmanship, its surprising morsels of twang among a set of elaborate string arrangements and cheerful uh, other uh, touches. And there's a prevailing joy uh, through which even the sorrow and the angst and the displacement sometimes sounds like joy, you know? So yeah. amusingly, uh, what may be the band's most Southern-influenced album was actually recorded in Bears Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, New York. That is the upstate joint that the band and Todd Rundgren effectively broke in for countless bands that followed. So, hey, you know, uh, who knew that R.E.M. had anything to do with Woodstock? You know, research (laughs) research sometimes bears pleasant surprises. Anyway, the main event of Out of Time, of course, is the wonderful, gorgeous, mysterious single Losing My Religion, uh, a piece of pop gold that probably will never lose its luster and whose meaning. Will never quite exactly be clear. Of course, ambiguity and opacity are ingredients of the formative REM template that Michael Stipe never abandoned. In the unlikely case that you forgot, this is the one with the mandolin. Uh, <laughs> yep. And so, uh, in interviews that coincided with Out of Time's Arrival and about when losing my religion hit MTV in the airwaves and exploded. Uh, Stipe did in interviews. Uh, he would talk about the expression "my losing my religion." It was a uh, an old school uh, Southern used expression that was a description or kind of a slang for you know the moment when you're confused or despondent or on the verge of imploding emotionally. Uh, the song was not actually about abandoning the Bible Belt brand of faith in the Almighty. Uh, now, whether uh, the uh, song specifically addresses a friend or a lover, or a community of uh, once like-minded people. Uh, in either case, I mean, the sort of chorus in this this song actually doesn't have like a, a bona fide sort of orthodox chorus, which makes it interesting. But the sort of chorus and these words still resonates. You know, I thought I heard you laughing. I thought I heard you sing. I think I thought I saw you try, but that was just a dream. Uh, just a really kind of lovely, uh, uh, forlorn sentiment. And really losing my religion was such a lovely yet weird and uncommon song and an extremely unlikely hit for any area. But it was one that my 15 year old self couldn't help sing compulsively and perhaps shed a tear or or a time or two in listening to it. Uh, And the song was also accompanied by a video inspired by a Gabriel Garcia Marquez story that presumably featured androgynous angels and old bearded men who dig stigmata. (laughs) Now uh, this combination was apparently too much to bear for some of the band's leftover smart boy fans still humming. Can't get here from there and Superman in their heads. A few of these folks perhaps, perhaps suffered aneurysms from the shock guitarist, Peter Buck's response to these gripes and moans was direct and sort of brutal. I'm borrowing this from a 2020 article by writer Evan Schlansky that ran in the magazine American Songwriter. Buck's quote, the people that change their mind because of losing my religion can just kiss my ass. (laughs) Well then. Now, uh, elsewhere and out of time, there is the bubblicious in your hair that you may never fully wash out. And that's namely the unabashedly... Uh, enthusiastic and, uh, bubbly, shiny, happy people. The Mm. video for the song was among the most pastel and therefore corniest videos ever aired. But Stipe and guest vocalist Kate Pearson of the B-52s are clearly having so much fun, uh, belting out the jaunty chorus on camera that it's actually forgivable. Now, those were the hits. And the ones we remember, but to me, as I've aged, uh, the deeper cuts and out of time have grown much more compelling. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, I have come to believe that the real star of this record is bassist and Ace Harmony vocalist, Mike Mills. Right. Now everything Mills contributes here is lovely, thoughtfully, uh, thoughtful, and subtly ultra competent. Mills even wrote some lyrics. He wrote all the lyrics to probably what I think is the truly best song on the record, Tex Arcana. Uh, Moving mid-tempo thumper, that's really, again, arguably the song truest to the original R.E.M. thang, uh, dating back to the Wolves' Lower EP. Uh, Now, uh, Mills is also the DNA of the very pretty, very shapely pop tune Near Wild Heaven, on which his voice really defines the mood. And on this album, uh, just as a point, uh, all of the songwriting credits for all songs are attributed to all four members of the band, Stipe, Buck, Mills, and drummer, Bill Berry. But yeah. it is well reported common knowledge that Mills was the chief influencer on those songs I just mentioned
1: and right. really
0: on the album as a whole. Now, looping back to my original hook of thrusting into the mainstream. And as a conclusory thought, uh, we can't ignore uh, the placement in the album sequence and the tone Of radio song Uh, This is an tempo uh, Ditty about how the protagonist Can't find anything on the radio That does not suck And (laughs) ends with a guest rap From the always cynical KRS-One Now that is a truly funny uh, Way to begin an album that Officially made R.E.M. rich and famous On the radio Uh, Maybe those original True believers didn't need to kiss Peter Buck's ass after all now, Arturo, how does our how does Out of Time uh, rate uh, with you?
1: I love Out of Time. Um, I, it, it's it's not in my top five REM, but it's damn near it, and it's a beautiful pop record. Three things: number one, Mike Mills is was the resident Brian Wilson fan of the band, so it's no surp- it's no surprise that Out of Time has the sound that it has. You know, it, it, it's the closest thing they've come to the Beach Boys, really. As far as the Kate Pearson uh, uh, from the B 52s uh the Kate Pearson team ups go, I think the last track on Out of Time, yeah. Me and Honey, is way way better than Shiny Happy People. Yes, I think that yeah. I think that should have been that should have been the follow up single to Losing My Religion, not Shiny Happy People. Yeah,
0: and thanks for covering me on that. Yeah, that that is the much better Kate Pearson uh, guest spot. Yeah.
1: Is one of one of Buck's best riffs ever. Um, it, it, it's moodier, it's mellower. It's still a love song. Every song on Out of Time is a romantic relationship song. Everyone, in in some way or form. Yep. Um, and you know, Out of Time, of course, me and Honey deals with uh, you know a romantic couple having a baby. You know, which is hmm. can't get more can't get lovelier than that. So the third thing I want to bring, and uh, it's hard for me to add. To Out of time because you did such a good job of describing it, but I know another person who can add some good words of description to "Out of Time." Who's that? <laughs> Our good buddy Robert Criscow. Here's his review of "Out of oh, Time" holy 1991. Hell. Go ahead. Yes, he he gave the album an A. Quote: "Hiding political ticks behind faux formalist boilerplate." pop aesthetics accused them of imposing solidarity and agent orange on their musical material but in fact such subjects signaled an other directedness as healthy as michael stipe's newfound elocution admittedly with this one beginning quote the world is collapsing around our ears from radio song like you mentioned chris I wondered briefly whether losing my religion was about music itself, but when Stipe says they thought about calling it love songs, he's not just mumbling Dixie <laughs> being, being REM, they mean to capture moods or romantic relationships rather than describe feelings or God knows incidents. And while some will find the music too pleasing, like the people Peter Buck referred to by kissing his ass, it matches the words, Hurt for Hurt and Surge for Surge. The Kate Pearson cameos, the cellos, and Mark Bingham's organic string arrangements are murmur without walls. Beauty worthy of debarge, hmm? of the sweetest sukus of a masked choir singing, I want to know what love is.
0: Well, there you go. Debarge <laughs> and Foreigner uh, at the end of an REM discussion. We have R.E.M., Foreigner, and The Barge leading into, of all bands, Primal Scream. Okay, (laughs) one of these things is not like the other.
1: Therefore, (laughs) uh,
0: Primal Scream releases Screamadelica, which, trivia, the very first winner of the Mercury Prize, which is the U.K. shtick for the best album released in 92.
1: Yeah, n- Not a very good distinction considering all the crappy albums Mercury Prize. Yeah, this is probably like
0: the one time they got it right, but uh, anyway, right. I digress. Yeah.
1: Anyway. anyway, Boy, did Creation Records have a banner year in 1991. <laughs> Within a three-month span, they released era and sub-genre-defining classics like My Bloody Valentine's Loveless, Teenage Fan Club's bandwagon and the next album that we'll talk about, as you said, Chris Screamadelica, by Primal Scream. Now, in the previous episode, I spoke about the Manchester scene, particularly the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses, and how they crafted a new kind of alternative rock by melding traditional British indie guitar pop with the beats, rhythms, and textures of EDM, Staples, house, and techno music. What Primal Scream did was dive all the way into the essence of electronic dance music to the point that, at times, it was difficult to tell if this was a band effort or a DJ set by producer Andrew <laughs> Weatherall. You know? um, this deep dive, however, was heavily augmented by forays into musical areas that the Manchester bands didn't really touch. Dub, reggae, industrial funk, gospel music, and Brian Wilson-influenced Pet Sounds-esque psychedelic pop. The result was the apotheosis of British rock's love affair with Acid House and dance music. Screamadelica being so singularly bloody-minded brilliant that it killed off the subgenre for any other band to try to match, much like how My Bloody Valentine did for Shoegazer with Loveless. Primal Scream didn't start off as a revolutionary band, though. Uh, Bobby Gillespie, the frontman and the main linchpin of Primal Scream, was the drummer for legendary noise pop band, not shoegazer band, (laughs) the Jesus and Mary Chain during their early years and left the band after their first album, 1985's classic Psycho Candy. Wanting to front his own band, he formed Primal Scream shortly afterward. I guess Gillespie's indie cred from the Jesus and Mary Chain days must have carried weight because Creation Records picked the band up and released some initial singles and their debut album, Sonic Flower Groove, in 1987. Essentially a third rate, inconsequential, generic, indie, jingle jangle guitar pop band that was a dime a dozen at the time, of the sort that only the Smiths were good at. Uh, uh, the album flopped, and rightfully so. It sucked. Uh, they would reinvent themselves two years later with 1989's self-titled album, and at this point, they tried really hard to be a soulful, st- stonesy, 1970s hard rock band, basically the kind of formula the Black Crows would perfect one year later. Unfortunately for the Scream, they didn't have a guitarist who could generate anthemic riffs like Rich Robinson could, and their singer, Gillespie, couldn't come close to approaching Chris Robinson's rich vocal range, and as composers, they couldn't come close to matching the Robinson Brothers' tight-as-nails songwriting. Fortunately for the scream, however, and much like the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses before them, when those two bands were floundering, they found their way thanks to countless club nights getting high off their tits on ecstasy (laughs) and absorbing the liberating sounds of acid house and techno. All of a sudden, the wild eclecticism that Gillespie and company wanted as representative of their sound became attainable, almost as if the drugs sharpened their ambition and ability to harness the disparate styles that they craved. Getting Weatherall to produce was a godsend as well. And uh, as a first-time producer, Andrew Weatherall, uh, he took a DJ's approach to the studio by taking the bits and pieces he liked from the band's jam sessions, rearranging them and and uh, augmenting them to parts sampled from other sources and rhythmic loops that he created. Uh, Songs that would eventually appear on Screamadelica would appear as singles starting as early as spring 1990. Loaded is essentially a gospel-tinged remix of an earlier Primal Scream song, the bluesy ballad I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have, but made almost unrecognizable by funky dance beats, a vocal sample by the 1970s Chicago R&B soul group The Emotions, and a drum loop taken from Yes, Edie Brickell and the Bohemians, "What I Am." Nice. <laughs> if that sounds audacious, that's because it is. Yep. You know, uh, indie rock and drugged up dance rave culture came together in a soulful way that the Stone Roses and Happy Run- Mondays didn't do at all. And the song was a monster hit, reaching number 16 in the UK singles chart. Come Together, released in the summer of 1990 and not a cover of the Beatles classic, is majestic psychedelic pop filtered through a hybrid of rousing gospel, acid house music, and a punctuating uh, stacks style horn section uh stacks record label of memphis in the 1960s and 70s uh that did soul soul and funk music it was also a hit in the uk by breaking in the to- into the top 30 by the time the deep bass groove of techno soul rocker don't fight it feel it hit in early 91 primal scream were stars and they had taken the focus of ed of the edm rock fusion away from manchester uh, moving on up with its clever echoing of uh, Stephen Stills' Love the One You're With is uh, one of the album's signature moments and biggest hit, reaching number 11 in the UK singles chart and even getting some airplay on American rock radio. Um, Screamadelica is one of those moment quote-unquote albums in UK rock history where the best of 1960s psychedelia, the best of 1970s R&B soul funk, and the best of 1980s EDM merged into this seamless, flawless hole where anything seemed possible. Uh, lots of bands and artists would try to follow Primal Scream's template in new and interesting ways as the 1990s progressed, but none did it quite as well. Heck, not, not even the band themselves tried to do this again. Um, the Scream would go on to have one of the most Consistently terrific discographies in rock for the next decade and a half, venturing into Southern R&B and soul much better and more convincingly, I might add, than their first foray. They would go into trip-hop, techno, and krautrock-inspired art rock. But it was with Screamadelica that Primal Scream created their enduring masterpiece and their contribution to the jaw-dropping list of all-time great albums throughout the fourth golden age of rock.
0: Chris? Yeah, uh, just a few uh, brief thoughts. Uh, Yes, uh, great, great album. Uh, I do find it funny that in an album that is so influenced by Acid House and uh, Manchester Electronica and these sort of, you know, disco uh, psychedelic hybrids, that the two singles and the two most popular songs on this record sound yeah. like they belong on traffic's album, John Barleycorn must die.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: I mean, it's, it's, it really, I mean, it, it is kind of amazing. They do have that kind of traffic, uh, you know, kind of, you know, traffic patented Stevie Winwood kind of, you know, groove and sort of that laid yeah. back, you know, uh, kind of piano and, uh, kind of groove. So that's, that's worth mentioning. Um, And then they also pull off again it's a neat feat where you, you mix acid house disco and like tomorrow never knows. Uh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, here's a question though, in listening to this album again, now within all of this, I mean, there's, there's strong, there's really strong songs, but there's a really, uh, influential rhythm and there's some really kind of nasty spots here and there for guitar. Fair question. Uh, Would you call this kind of the prehistoric marker for the beginning of Britpop's rise? Because there are some classic rock influence and structural aspects here that drove it to me. And maybe I'm making a leap because I have an odd brain. uh, I kind of potentially hear the birth of Radiohead, Blur, and maybe even Oasis, especially in the song Higher Than the Sun. Uh, so it's, you know, it's all pretty, it's dark, engaging and exquisitely, uh, rift. So uh, those are some contemplations. Otherwise you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is one of the, the strangest, but most magnificently original, uh, albums of the era. And yeah, it, I think its main influence in the fourth golden age of rock is it had a whole lot of folks that tried to capture the magic that failed miserably.
1: And took a lot of ecstasy while doing it. Yeah, no shit. At least, at least they had fun. Yeah, I mean personally, the, if you talk about the birth of Britpop, I go further back with the Stone Roses. I mean, yeah, that's me, fair. Th- 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 that's a foundational influence for Oasis. I mean, God, I mean, Leon Gallagher took his whole persona from like uh, Ian Brown. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, you
0: know? yeah. That so. yeah, that's that's a fair connection. So, yeah. so there we go. So now from the electronica of England to the final stand of real metal. Yeah. And so uh, let's get into it. And this is one of the more forgotten aspects of 1991, but it merits yeah. uh, serious discussion because it was part of the pivot. Um, right now within four weeks of each other in uh, 1991, uh, Metallica's self-titled record now, obviously known as the black album, and Guns N' Roses, uh, dual uh, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 were released. And so uh, Metallica's is in mid-August and the Use Your Illusion albums are in mid-September. Uh, um, I find that kind of remarkable that I mean, this is kind of metal's last stand. They come out just before uh, grunge and just before, you know, sort of the rising organic rock. And so, um, you know, this is like, again, it's the last stand of the down and dirty, intense, virtuosic, angry kind of metal that right. guy, that guys with dirty long hair who drank a lot of beer on stage and started fights. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it, it that was, it, that was their thing and it was still there. And so, like I said, you have these basically simultaneous releases. And so, uh, strangely enough, there's probably a week in there where like, uh, Enter Sandman, uh, You Could Be Mine or Don't Cry and like Michael Jackson's Black and White are like the, you know, the three most popular songs in rotation on MTV, which is just a weird uh, thing uh, to think about. Uh, Last episode, remember Metallica. So this is sort of the culmination of... Uh, what they had, you know, what they had walked over the last decade, that grassroots enthusiasm that converted to organically accrued stardom. This was kind of the, the final step of commercial and critical, uh, success. Last episode, uh, of this series, the, uh, the prelude episode, we talked a lot about how Metallica pre 1988 actually had competition for speed metal dominance. Right, And we talked about how in 1988, because of the video for one and uh, the brilliance of Injustice for All and just sort of the char- charisma of these guys, they uh, really became the clear winners. And so the Black Album, consequently, is the kind of album that you'd expect winners to make. To wit, a bigger budget than previously imaginable, rising star, ace producer who could actually, you know, produce an album worth a shit. Uh, which yeah. they hadn't had yet. Uh, they had a lessening need for the validation that generated all those complex, hard to replicate on a nightly basis compositions on Master of Puppets and A Justice for All. They now had the maturity to figure out they could use just one riff in a song. Yeah, And, of course, they now had the desire to get on the tastemaking radio stations and MTV with regularity, which, of course, they did. Now, like I said, Guns N' Roses, they come out with their, uh, their next uh, volley in mid-September. Uh, now, similarly to Metallica, they were the other unexpected organic breakout purveyors of genuine, awesome, real metal of the late 80s. And uh, because of the success of Appetite for Destruction, which is you know generally considered one of the greatest metal albums and certainly one of the greatest debut albums of all time, they also in our, are in a position to uh, release and record uh, their winners album, and so you know they kind of have that uh, freedom, and you know they you know, they have these sort of priorities that come uh, uh, with winning, and so uh, you know we've discussed this at you know other times in the life of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. That, uh, you know, the release and explosive reception of Nirvana's Nevermind released September 24th, 1991, a week after you think your legend records, uh, changed everything and killed a whole lot of mainstream metal cockroaches. Uh, So then here's a question and something to analyze here. Why did Guns N' Roses perish in humiliating fashion while Metallica Metallica survived and eventually became revered legends and a Basically, a thriving corporation. It really comes down to two factors. Unity is one, personality is the other. Now, yeah. after Appetite for Destruction hits, again, incredible success, uh, one of the best debut records of all time, regarded as a classic even back then. After this, W. Axl Rose and to a, less, a lesser extent, Slash, uh, they embraced their status as newly minted rock stars down there in Los Angeles. Uh, this of course led to conflict, uh, stage, you know, it's, you know, there were musical oscillations and there was plenty of bad public behavior. Uh, basically, uh, Axl let adulation and cr- creative freedom go to his head. And he decided that Guns N' Roses should start actually transcending metal and venture into 70s style majesty of Elton John, Queen, and some of those bands or those artists, 70s contemporaries. Meanwhile, Slash and guitarist Eddie Stradlin, who left the band right after basically right after the recording of these records, they still wanted to metal the fuck out. And so now you've got this tension in these Use Your Illusion albums of you've got it's kind of this bloating spilling, bloated spilling. And so you have get these kind of uh, you know, sort of winding epic um, uh, self-serious uh, uh, pop songs and sort of epics uh, the most laughable of which is estranged on Use Illusion 2. That's the one with the video with uh, with uh, Axel riding a dolphin and Slash doing a solo uh, while walking on water. One um, of the most
1: ridiculous fucking videos ever yeah. made. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, there, there's a term jump, uh, jumping the shark yeah. that comes from a, a, the Happy Days episode with Fonzie jumping the shark. There should be a phrase called Oh, yeah. They, they swam with dolphins, referring to the point where Axl Rose is now an official. Bloated embarrassment of a rock star, (laughs) yeah.
0: And so, like I said, so you have this tension. So, on one side, you've got Axel's newfound sensitivity, on the other side, you've got uh, Slash's nasty yet gorgeous uh, lead guitar gymnastics. Yeah, and so eventually, they have all this stuff. What did they decide to do? They puke it out, and so you release uh, two albums, uh, well, collectively, are probably about a hundred minutes or something, you know, some crazy amount of music. But so you've got a lot of great stuff that if you uh, work really hard, you can make one album out of. Uh, stay tuned here in a couple minutes. Uh, that that is possible. But otherwise, much of the remainder of these Use Your lotion albums is like basically the uh, tantamount to porta potty shit rolling down a hill. <laughs> uh, there's one str- again, one strong masterful hard record album to be had here for sure. Uh, the bigger issue here though, as far as the demise of GNR, is that Axel grew into more of a notorious prick that ran off two bandmates, casually chose to end concerts way early if he was perturbed, and otherwise made himself look like a phony-ass fool next to the sincere, sardonic, antihero superstar Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. Bad look, bad timing, and a little too uh, much bad music to boot. Uh, In contrast, uh, phoniness and a thirst for the rock limelight was not something that truly plagued Metallica. Surely they enjoyed the status and perks that came with their success, but they never took the focus off the music or the fans that Dunn brought them to the dance. Or they never lost focus on the mission to be the best band in the world. Authenticity and adjacent likability became a litmus test, really, for all of music starting late in 1991. Metallica never, ever, ever had a problem clearing that bar. Um, And so, you know, in a way, you know, those divergent paths were really a damn shame because Guns N' Roses was still mostly a really, really great band when they focused. I mean, you've got songs like You Could Be Mine and Pretty Tied Up that prove this. And they could have kept wielding influence and evolving through the rest of the 90s. But alas, money, ego, drugs, MTV, and laziness were a hell of a combined drug and it led GNR to ruins. Worth mentioning, by the way, that uh, GNR and Metallica actually toured together, which led to a very famous incident in Montreal where uh, James Hetfield was on stage in the wrong spot at the wrong time and got basically his whole arm singed off by pyro. Yeah. They had, to, uh, they had to stop the show early. Uh, Guns N' Roses has gone on first. The fans are confused. It's only been a couple of songs. I guess uh, someone asked uh, Axel and Guns N' Roses to come back on to keep these folks at bay. Uh, Axel said, fuck that. No. And, of course, <laughs> a riot broke out. And so uh, these bands are inexorably linked uh, in history because of that incident. So uh, with that, Arturo, you did an exercise where you took these Your illusion well, albums and you melded them together. I mean, I'm curious yeah. to see what you came up with.
1: Well, before I do that, I want to say something about Metallica's Black album. Um, clearly, it's Metallica's most important record. It's the one that you know that, that 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 you know what Blood Sugar Sex Magic did for the Chili Peppers. That's what it did for Metallica, and it made them one of the biggest bands ever. Right. Um, I'm going to paraphrase Kirk Hammett, the lead guitarist. In an interview he did with Mojo several years ago, in which he said, yeah, the Black Album, it's not a great album. It's an album that has some great songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's exactly what I think of the Black Album, especially in the first half. The first half of the Black Album, you got all those tracks. Enter Sandman, Sad But True, Holier Than Thou, The Unforgiven, Wherever My I May Roam. And then a couple of tracks later, nothing else matters. All the singles, basically, all the five songs that were huge on rock radio. The album is front loaded on the first half with some of the best songs you've ever done. The second half of the Black album has some of the worst Metallica songs ever. It has some of the, it basically has some songs that border on self parody, you know, of of Wolf and Man. Don't Tread on Me. Don't Tread on Me. Yeah. You know songs like that, yeah. uh the God that failed, shit like that. I was like, yeah. God, th- 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 these these songs like these songs should be like outtakes or B sides. They shouldn't yeah. be on the freaking album. agreed You know, so we're, we're talking about the greatness of the Black Album. It's really the first half of the Black Album and the singles. um uh, It's really not the best full length album Metallica ever made. Hell, you know, we talked about Saint Anger on this. I'll put Saint Anger ahead of the Black Album, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, so that's that's why I stay on the Black Album. Now, as for Guns N' Roses, yes. Um, each Use Your Illusion album itself, each of them individually, are not great albums, but they do have great moments. So if you get the best of both, I assembled a 13-track single Use Your Illusion. And I, at least... This curmudgeon's ideal use your illusion uh, a track listing with right,
0: with learned input from this curmudgeon so this isn't yes. just a one man show
1: exactly so I'm gonna it starts off it's a uh, it's thirteen tracks the first seven tracks would be side A of vinyl the second uh the, the second six eight through thirteen would be side B of vinyl okay so track one. Would be the the song that kicks off "Use Your Illusion 2, "Civil War." You know, uh, epic, powerful uh, song. Not quite a ballad, but a scorching, just you know, a, 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 a momentum-building track that is the closest thing Axel Rose and the band ever came to, like you know, a, a political statement. You know about how, how bad war is. You know, <laughs> it's, it's 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 a it's a pretty generic. A point coming from them, but it's a moving song. When Axl Rose wanted to be, he could be a pretty good lyricist. Yes. And uh, he was really good. Civil War is one of my favorite GNR tracks. That's track one. Next, you get the full-blown kick-ass rocker You Could Be Mine from the Terminator 2 soundtrack. That's where it, that's where it came from. So uh, it'd be great uh, follow-up Civil War with You Could Be Mine, the epic followed by the big rocker that's already a hit, was already a hit, and then followed by the first big ballad hit of the album, Don't Cry, featuring Shannon Hoon, lead singer from Blind Melon on vocals.
0: Who grew up in Indiana with Axel.
1: Right. So we got the epic, the rocker, the ballad starting it off. Then the next two tracks, tracks four and five, are the two mid-tempo introspective romantic relationship songs, you know, 14 years, which I think is a pretty underrated song in the GNR canon followed by yesterday's, one of my favorite songs on the entire thing. You know, it's yeah. It's proves good, that, good pop song. Yeah. Yeah. Which proves that, you know, it, it shows Axel's infatuation with Elton John a bit, you know? Sure. Um, then you have back to the heavy rock right next door to hell, the song that realistically kicks off Use Your Illusion 1. I have this. I, I've always kind of liked this song, track six. And then we end side A with the big, big ballad, of course, one of the band's biggest hits ever, November Rain. Yep. Right? Okay, side two. And now this side two is where it gets really heavy. I We saved a lot of the heavy rockers. Sure. Shotgun Blues kicks off side two, track eight, but side uh. First track on side two of vinyl, "Shotgun Blues," followed by the really long track, "Breakdown." Yeah, um, how long is "Breakdown"? Let me think. I, I, I remember it to be like
0: about ten minutes, right? It's yeah. Uh,
1: well, "Breakdown" it's a seven-minute song. Yeah, it feels like um, ten minutes, but, but yeah, I know it does. Um, but "Shotgun Blues," the heavy, fast punk kind of a punk song actually, it's very punkish. Followed by "Breakdown," which is a multi-section rocker followed by one of my all-time favorite GNR songs, Pretty Tied Up. Oh,
0: wonderful song. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah.
0: yeah, not yeah, not exactly going to win him any Woke awards uh, these days, but but yeah. great great song.
1: Well, the song apparently the song is supposed to describe the LA sadomasochistic underground scene. Yeah. Basically it was Axel getting his inner Lou Reed on, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh lyric lyrically speaking. Next track 11, Locomotive, another epically long song eight minutes and 42 seconds yeah okay but another heavy rocker as well that has different that, that that goes through some mood changes followed by garden of eden which is an intense punk rocker okay followed by another epic track 13 the final track on my imaginary use your illusion the song that actually has a very heavy grunge riff Coma.
0: Oh yeah. I mean I, I loved, loved I loved coma as a kid. I mean that was that was the one that really drew me in the most. I mean that just is sort of epic, dramatic, big uh, yeah. riff riff rock, kind of crunchy, uh yeah. you know, like I said, sort of, you know, it's almost like a, an opera in a song. So yeah, that's a good track yeah. listing. Although I, I did make mild arguments for both Dead Horse and Get in the Ring. That, uh, I hate I hate get, get in the ring is such a stupid song. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. I mean, it is funny, and it shows just how petty Axel was getting, like his his feud with uh, Guccione Junior, or was that his name? The uh, the son of the penthouse finder, uh, founder that he was having real problems with it uh, label wise. And so it's so juvenile stuff, Morick and so vulgar, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, but anyway, and then dead horse obviously is kind of in that middle ground, but I guess if you're going to choose between that and yesterday's, I guess yesterday's wins. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, so there, like we said, so that is the, uh, last edge and the dying on the cliff, uh, portion of the history of metal it hasn't really been the same since sure you get your mastodons and uh dimu Borgiers years once in a while but there hasn't really been like a real metal band that's been you know like uh you know uh, that kind of bursting explosive uh spot for a long time 1991 folks we have gone uh, january to december we have run the gamut from a to z z z z z z z Uh, you should be proud for listening just as much as we're proud for assembling this uh, wonderful conversation, Arturo. Uh, Any final thoughts uh, before we sign off?
1: Yeah. Like I said, 1991 was the year zero was the explosion of the fourth golden age of rock alternative and indie and grunge become mainstream. Our next episode will cover 1992. So if 1991 was the explosion, 1992 is the aftershocks explosion. Yeah, the aftershocks of the explosion, in which you get a lot of subgenres start creeping up. Yes, a lot of rock subgenres start to be born a little bit. Yeah, and start having effects later in the decade.
0: Right, and then meanwhile, uh, all of those explosions that happened in '91, uh, the bands that created and were part of the explosions, that's when they started to make all their money. Was yeah, in, was in 1992. Yeah. That that that's a point that definitely needs to be made.
1: And sure. so, uh, <laughs> as
0: I always say at the end of our episodes, catch us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com, Drop us a line there. Give us, uh, tell us how you really feel. And then, uh, very proud of our uh, ongoing Facebook page. We have uh, some loyal uh, folks that contribute. We call it the Curmudgeon Rock Reports Curmudgeonly Community. You heard me mention it at the top of the uh, show. Uh, definitely go there. It's invite only, but, hey, chances are we'll let you in because, hey, what the what the heck. When we start having standards, we probably should start, you know, winding down this podcast so as we close this marvelous rediscovery of 1991 we'd like to leave you all with a homework assignment to further your appreciation for grunge please listen to mud honey's every good boy deserves fudge and melvin's bullhead those two 1991 albums expand on the wonder and the awesome power of grunge just about as well as any other albums from that year did. Except, of course, for the obvious releases. Anyway, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com to bloviate, to argue, or to praise, uh, preferably uh, that latter one. We'll see everyone here again in two weeks when we relive 1992. So long, everyone. So as we close this marvelous rediscovery of 1991, we'd like to leave you all with a homework assignment. To further your appreciation for grunge, please listen to Mudhoney's Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge and Melvin's Pullhead. Those two 1991 albums expand on the wonder and the awesome power of grunge just about as well as any other albums from that year did. Except, of course, for the obvious releases. Anyway, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com to bloviate, to argue, or to praise, uh, preferably uh, that latter one. We'll see everyone here again in two weeks when we relive 1992. So long, everyone.